Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse, violence, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Seven-year-old Stacy Lannard and her little sister, five-year-old Christy, giggled as they watched cartoons on the living room couch. Their mother, 28-year-old Deborah, sat rigidly beside them, glancing at the clock and squirming in her seat. She jumped as the front door suddenly swung open. Her husband, 33-year-old Tom, burst in and stumbled to the edge of the couch. Without bothering to say hello, he demanded his dinner. His breath reeked of beer. Deborah rolled her eyes and told Tom she'd wrapped up his food and put it in the fridge. He could get it himself. Tom's eyes flashed. He stomped into the kitchen, grabbed the ceramic container of leftover pasta, and hurled it across the room. Marinara saw splattered the walls. Shards of broken ceramic covered the floor. Stacy stayed silent and hugged her little sister into her chest, trying to shield her from the noise. Christy screamed and sobbed, wiping her nose on the sleeve of Stacy's shirt. Stacy held her close. She wasn't worried about herself, but she couldn't stand for Christy to see their father like this. She'd do anything to protect her little sister. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. This week, we'll discuss the relationship between Tom Lannert and his oldest daughter, Stacy. Tom physically and sexually abused Stacy for over a decade until in 1990, he finally pushed her too far and the Lannard family was shattered forever. Next week, we'll discuss the violent crime that left one person dead and another imprisoned. We'll also talk about the culprit's long quest for redemption. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. 
what happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Tom Lannert and his wife, Deborah, both came from traumatic circumstances. Tom's father cheated on his mother and frequently verbally abused her. Deborah was a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Her father molested her, and although her mother knew about it, she never intervened. These experiences permanently affected the way Tom and Deborah viewed their family. Before I continue with their psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In her book, Intergenerational Cycles of Trauma and Violence, psychologist Dr. Pamela C. Alexander writes that abusive parents are significantly more likely to report a history of abuse or neglect themselves. Indeed, a 1987 study conducted at Yale University found that the rate of abusive parenting among former victims was six times higher than in the general population. From birth, Tom and Deborah were caught in a cycle of violence that can be difficult to break. At first, however, it seemed that Tom and Deborah were cultivating a positive long-term relationship. The couple met in their early 20s, married and settled in St. Louis, Missouri. 28-year-old Tom and 23-year-old Deborah both wanted their home to be a sanctuary, not a battleground like the houses they'd grown up in. They expanded their family in 1972 when they had their first child, Stacy. Just two years later, in 1974, their second daughter, Christy, was born. According to Stacy, before she even started kindergarten, she already knew that she was her father's favorite. After dinner, as he lounged in his recliner to watch sports, she was always the one who sat on his lap. As she got older, she developed a tomboyish attitude. Because baseball was her father's favorite, it was hers too. When she was in preschool, her mother bought her a figurine of a girl swinging a bat. At the bottom, it said, anything boys can do, girls can do better. As an adult, Stacy would look back at this time as the happiest in her life. Things were simple, and in her five-year-old mind, her family was perfect. In reality, however, Tom and Deborah were hiding tremendous troubles from their young daughters. Though Tom had a steady job as a corporate actuary, it was tough to make ends meet. It didn't help that instead of coming straight home after work, 31-year-old Tom developed a habit of stopping at bars with his coworkers. Deborah never knew whether he would be home on time or if he would amble in hours late, stinking of booze. Although his daughters didn't know it, Tom was struggling with alcohol addiction. The stress of supporting his family and working a job he found unfulfilling only worsened his compulsion to drink. At first, he tried to hide his problem, but he couldn't keep things under wraps forever. 
1977, a sudden knock came at the Lannard's front door. Deborah looked through the peephole. She saw her husband, a dopey smile on his face, standing on their porch next to a police officer. Her stomach dropped. Whatever Tom had done this time, it was sure to be humiliating. When she opened the door, the officer told her Tom had crashed his car into a tree. Deborah could practically feel their bank account emptying as he spoke. Tom was going to need a new car. Their insurance rate was going to rise. As Deborah's mind reeled, her despair turned to fury. The officer told Deborah that Tom's blood alcohol was way above the legal limit. In fact, it was high enough to kill a normal person. Deborah looked at her husband, disgusted. He didn't look like the handsome man she'd married. He was slimy with sweat, still smiling idiotically even after such a horrifying crash. She almost wished the crash would have killed him. Despite his wife's anger, Tom laughed off the wreck. At the time, drunk driving laws were rarely enforced in Missouri, so he was only issued a citation. In his mind, since he didn't get a ticket, it was no big deal. Two days later, he came home with a brand new car. Deborah fumed. Five-year-old Stacy had little understanding of her father's issues. She loved Tom and believed pretty much anything he told her. When he came home drunk and Deborah wouldn't talk to him, Tom told Stacy her mother was just nagging him and she listened. While Deborah seethed, Stacy sat on Tom's lap and watched baseball without a care in the world. Over the next two years, the rift between Tom and Deborah grew dramatically. They had wanted to build an idyllic home together, but Tom's alcoholism was destroying its foundation. By 1979, the couple fought constantly, often screaming at each other, even in front of their daughters. Still naive, seven-year-old Stacy blamed her mother for flying off the handle at Tom. She had no idea that Deborah was trying to protect her. Later that year, while Stacy was away at school, Deborah got rid of her beloved pet dog. She told Stacy the pup had to go because it wouldn't stop peeing on the carpet. But what Deborah couldn't explain to her daughter was that she was trying to do their dog a favor. When Tom came home drunk and belligerent, he often tripped over the helpless animal and then, in a rage, kicked it repeatedly. Deborah couldn't stand to see their dog getting hurt. Deborah took it on herself to hide Tom's violence from their daughters. He was only mean when he was drunk, but the problem was he was drunk nearly constantly. After Tom threw a plate of pasta against the wall one evening in late 1979, Deborah was horrified. It was one thing for Tom to act this way around her, but it was another to explode in front of the girls. She packed up their children, then drove to Tom's mother's house, their closest relative, so she could get some space while she figured out what to do next. Unfortunately, her options were sparse. She hadn't worked in seven years. She had no money of her own and in conservative Missouri, no family members who would support a divorce. Deep down, there was a part of her that still loved Tom. She just wanted him to stop drinking alcohol turned him into a different person. Soon enough, 
Tom showed up at his mother's house, laying apologies at Deborah's feet. He swore he would stop drinking so long as she would take him back. Deborah believed him, but insisted they needed a fresh start, so the family moved to Kansas in 1980. Their new house was modest, but it felt like a castle to six-year-old Christy and eight-year-old Stacy. Although the flying spaghetti had terrified both girls, it scared them more to see their parents split up, even for a short time. Kansas seemed promising, and the year was off to a good start. Unfortunately, their domestic bliss wouldn't last. When we return, a family tragedy leads Tom back to the bottle. Listeners, I have a surprising treat for you. You know you can find love in a bar or on an app. Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date, minus the distraction of appearances. But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on. And it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Now, back to the story. After years of heavy drinking and a blowout fight made 29-year-old Deborah Lannert consider leaving her husband, Tom, he promised that he'd swear off the bottle to preserve their family. To get a fresh start, Tom, Deborah, and their daughter, six-year-old Christy and eight-year-old Stacy, moved to Kansas in 1980. Within just a few months, however, Tom was drinking again. Deborah, furious at his broken promise, filed for divorce. For a few weeks, Deborah, Stacy, and Christy lived with Deborah's mother back in Missouri. But soon, Deborah's mother convinced her that she should give Tom another chance. Unfortunately, Deborah had no means to support herself otherwise. Tom and Deborah moved back in together again, this time to a farmhouse in rural Missouri. Tom promised his daughters, who were confused and upset by the frequent moves, that their lives would be more stable from that point forward. He bought six-year-old Christy a puppy and gave Deborah his word, no more drinking. It was another false start. Tom couldn't manage to stay sober for more than a few months at a time. In early 1981, his father passed away and he had trouble coping. Although he and his father had never been close, in fact, Tom resented him for cheating on his mother. The death nevertheless hit him hard. Distraught and depressed, he turned back to alcohol. All the progress of the last few months vanished in a matter of days. Tom soon drank himself into a stupor and screamed at Deborah, calling her terrible names in front of their kids. Deborah was beyond fed up. She could no longer let herself be dependent on Tom. Planning ahead, she enrolled in courses to earn a secretarial certification at a local community college. The classes would take some time, but once she was done, she would have a stable career and 
a way out. Tom supported Deborah's studies, but only because he didn't anticipate her plan to leave. He just knew they needed more money. Deborah spent many evenings in classes and busy with homework. Meanwhile, Stacy and Christy stayed late at school, then spent evenings with their father, who was, more often than not, intoxicated. According to Stacy, it was during this time that her father first sexually assaulted her. She was, as usual, sitting in Tom's lap while he laid in his recliner when he asked her if she wanted to play a special game called Touch Tongues with him. Stacy felt weird about the game, but not yet nine years old and entirely trusting of her father, she acquiesced. Eventually, Tom manipulated Stacy into performing oral sex on him. Afterwards, he told his daughter not to tell their mother about the game because Deborah might get mad that Tom was playing with Stacy instead of with her. Stacy, too young to know any better, did exactly what her father said. Over the next year, Tom continued forcing Stacy to play the game. Although Stacy didn't have the understanding or the words to say that she was being molested, she noticed a change come over her father. More and more often, he was harsh and frightening with her. One day in 1981, he worked himself into a rage while driving, over what Stacy couldn't recall. She just remembered that when they pulled up outside the house, Christy's cat Buttercup was laying in the driveway. The cat wouldn't move, so Tom cruelly ran over the animal. Christy and Stacy were petrified. When their father looked at them in the rearview mirror, his blue eyes were ice cold. According to Stacy, that was the moment she began to imagine her father as two different people. One was Daddy, the kind, funny man who watched baseball with her, the man she trusted. Then there was Tom, the evil, alcohol-fueled man who ran over Buttercup and forced her to play the game. Tom's moods were completely unpredictable and Stacy, increasingly afraid of her father, resented her mother for being away so often. Nine-year-old Stacy would come home from school paranoid, never sure whether or not Tom would assault her. One early evening near the end of 1981, 35-year-old Tom, drunk as ever, called Stacy down to the basement. There, he raped Stacy for the first time. The pain was so unbearable that she passed out. When she woke up later, she went upstairs and ran a bath as hot as she could stand. Her whole body hurt. She wanted to cleanse herself of the terrifying assault, somehow scrub hard enough that she could make the last hour disappear. As she was bathing, Tom burst into the bathroom and told Stacy that if she told anyone what happened in the basement, he would kill her. Deborah was away at school at the time, and Tom told Stacy that her mother would never help her. He told her Deborah didn't love her at all. Over the next year, Stacy tried to spend as much time out of the house as possible. She even joined the boys' baseball team at school and stayed late for practice. At 10 years old, however, she didn't have much power over where she went and when. 
If Tom came to pick her up from practice, she had to get in his car. At home, Stacy threw herself into her homework and books, anything to distract herself from the trauma. She felt anxious and sick to her stomach constantly. 36-year-old Tom got into the habit of waking her up in the middle of the night and dragging her down to the basement. She could hardly sleep, unsure whether her father suddenly would come creeping in or not. According to Stacy, her only solace in these moments was the knowledge that her sister, eight-year-old Christy, wasn't experiencing the same abuse. Ever since they were toddlers, Christy had been closer to their mother. This slight separation seemed to insulate her. Tom targeted Stacy and Stacy alone. It made Stacy feel even more isolated. Oftentimes, Stacy would experience bleeding from Tom's assaults. She had no idea how to use the washing machine, and she didn't want to throw them in the trash can in case someone found them. Unsure of what else to do, Stacy hid her underwear beneath the basement stairs. It stayed a secret until one afternoon in 1982. That day, 30-year-old Deborah decided it was high time someone cleaned the basement. She vacuumed, dusted, and organized. The space beneath the stairs was perfect for storage. When she opened it, however, she found a pile of children's underwear, all streaked with blood. At first, Deborah was confused. Then she was angry. Her daughters were young, but it was feasible that one of them had gotten their period. If they had just told her, she could have washed the stains out. Now, she was going to have to go buy new underwear for them, as if she needed another expense. Deborah marched upstairs, bloody fabric in tow. Since Stacy was the oldest, Deborah assumed she was responsible. She gave her daughter a lecture about menstruation and a stern reminder that they weren't made of money. Soiled clothing had to be washed, not just hidden away and replaced. Stacy was confused. She didn't have the vocabulary to ask for help or protection. At 10 years old, she had no idea how to articulate what Tom did to her. She knew he hurt her, but at times he was still the fun baseball-loving father he used to be. The man who dragged her to the basement wasn't the same man who cooked barbecues for the family. In Stacy's own words, she and her father bonded during the good times and she blocked out the bad. But the good times were few and far between. Tom and Deborah were always busy, tired, or fighting, so Stacy had to work hard to get their attention. In 1983, at the end of Stacy's fifth grade school year, she came home with great news. She'd been placed in the school's gifted and talented program. She thought her parents would be proud, and her mother was. Her father, however, ignored her accomplishment and even called her stupid. After almost three years of abuse, Stacy's relationship with her father was twisted. She pined for his love. She thought if she could do better, he would stop hurting her. Academics weren't enough, so she joined the school's track team. When she told Tom she made the team, however, he scoffed and told her girls couldn't run track. Stacy remembered the figurine her mother gave her as a child. Anything boys can do, girls can do better. She challenged her father to a race down the street and back. He agreed. 
Despite her considerably smaller stride, Stacy beat him twice. Stacy had hoped this could help her earn, if not her father's love, then at least his respect. It didn't. Some weeks, Tom would assault her nearly every day. At other times, he would leave her alone for a month or more. All the while, Deborah remained ignorant. She was still going to school, but in 1983, she began attending therapy to process her childhood trauma. Apparently, the counseling sessions opened her eyes, and she suddenly became suspicious of Tom. She expressed her concern to her mother. One day, while Stacy, Deborah, and Deborah's mother were in the car together, Stacy's grandmother asked if Tom had ever touched her. Stacy paused, then responded, Ew, no. Stacy later said that if you ask any child point blank if she is being abused, she will deny it. Though things aren't always so black and white, her assertion is backed up by several studies. According to Dr. Lenore Walker, a forensic psychologist and founder of the Domestic Violence Institute, victims of prolonged abuse experience learned helplessness, which causes them not to seek outside help. The theory of learned helplessness was developed by psychologist Dr. Martin Seligman, whose experiments found uncontrollable trauma leads victims to become passive in the face of trauma, i.e. they are slower to initiate responses to alleviate trauma and may not respond at all. In other words, after years of abuse, escaping the traumatic situation feels impossible, so much so that some victims stop trying altogether. In addition to her learned helplessness, Stacy had also been intimidated into staying quiet. Tom regularly reminded her that if she told anyone about what he did, he would kill her. At first, Deborah wasn't convinced by Stacy's rebuttal. She accused Tom outright of abusing Stacy, but unsurprisingly, he denied it. He gaslit Deborah, telling her that just because her father was abusive didn't mean he was. Deborah didn't press the issue again. Still, there were numerous red flags that should have made her more suspicious. Tom's drinking hadn't slowed, and he continued to be violent and angry. Stacy's bloodied underwear was just one piece of evidence. She was also chronically anxious, had nightmares, and hated leaving her bedroom at night. In seventh grade, Stacy started experiencing severe abdominal pain. Tom and Deborah took her to a gastroenterologist who diagnosed her with lactose intolerance, but Stacy knew milk wasn't the problem. In reality, she was suffering from pelvic inflammatory disease, an infection of the reproductive organs, which was, in all likelihood, directly caused by the sexual violence she'd endured. Although it's likely that Tom knew he had something to do with his daughter's illness, Deborah accepted that her daughter was lactose intolerant. At the time, she seemed to think little of her daughter's sickness. Her mind was elsewhere. By 1985, she'd finished her secretarial certification. In June of that year, she told Tom she wanted a divorce. 39-year-old Tom, drunk as usual, didn't take the news well. In his fury, he picked up a dining room chair and hurled it at their chandelier, sending shards of glass across the room. That was the final straw. 
34-year-old Deborah had secured a job and made enough money that she didn't have to rely on Tom anymore, so she kicked him out. With nowhere better to go, Tom moved in with his mother, who lived nearby. Deborah still didn't know what Tom did to Stacy. She just knew he was a violent, unpredictable alcoholic and refused to put up with him any longer. Deborah didn't want to live with Tom, but she still allowed him to visit his children and even be alone with them. Up next, Stacy finds the words to ask for help. Now, back to the story. In 1985, after over a decade of putting up with 39-year-old Tom Lannert's violence and alcoholism, 34-year-old Deborah Lannert filed for divorce. Although Tom had been sexually assaulting their oldest daughter, 13-year-old Stacy, for five years, Deborah either didn't know or was in denial about the abuse. Even after Tom moved in with his mother, Deborah still allowed him to see his daughters. On some weekends, Tom came to visit Stacy and 11-year-old Christy, but he didn't stay the night. For Stacy, this meant relative peace. In addition to working during the week, Deborah, recently single, regularly went on dates in the evenings and on weekends. Whenever she was out, a babysitter named Wendy came over to watch the girls. Wendy, herself a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, noticed signs of victimization in Stacy. One day, she told Stacy what had happened to her and asked the 13-year-old if she had experienced the same thing. Older and more confident than the last time she was asked, Stacy responded, yes. When Deborah came home from work that evening, Wendy told her that Tom was hurting Stacy. But Deborah did nothing to stop the abuse. In fact, the very next day, she dropped Christy and Stacy off to stay at their grandmother's house with Tom. According to Deborah, she didn't equate Wendy's assertion that Tom was hurting Stacy with sexual abuse, but she also didn't ask any questions to clarify exactly what the babysitter meant. Immediately after confiding her trauma for the first time, Stacy was thrown back to her abuser, and even with Christy and Grandma Lannard in the house, Tom raped her that night. Stacy sat alone, hugging her knees into her chest. She wanted to cry, but she knew tears wouldn't do her any good. Nothing would. She thought of her grandmother. Years ago, she'd asked Stacy if Tom was hurting her, and Stacy denied it. She didn't know why she lied. The truth was just too terrible too ugly. For the last two years, Stacy felt strangled by her own guilt. Every time her father touched her, she thought it was her fault because she hadn't spoken up before. But now she had. She gave voice to the awful truth and still nothing changed. It didn't matter what she said. Nobody was going to help her. She was all alone. In the fall of 1985, Stacy started eighth grade. Although she'd previously been put in the gifted and talented program, she didn't care much about school anymore. Instead, she started acting out by shoplifting from local stores. According to Stacy, she stole because she wanted attention from her mother, 
who was always distracted with work and dating, and her father, who, in Stacy's words, only loved her half the time. To get to the root of Stacy's behavior, Deborah had her see a psychologist, but Tom drove Stacy to her appointments and, sitting in the car before therapy sessions, he intimidated her, reminding her not to tell anyone what he'd done. Although Stacy never outright said Tom raped her, the psychologist told Deborah that her daughter was clearly being sexually abused by someone. Deborah asked Stacy if Tom was abusing her, and Stacy, her fear of her father outweighing her faith in her mother, once again denied it. In Deborah's eyes, the psychologist wasn't helpful, and she couldn't afford the continuing expense. She stopped paying for her daughter to go to therapy. Deborah was under tremendous financial pressure. She wasn't able to keep up with the payments for their house, so she moved to a small apartment. It was cramped, especially with her daughters there. Deborah wanted her own space, and soon enough, Christy and Stacy were once again living with Tom. The arrangement was disastrous, and not just for Stacy. Though her little sister, 11-year-old Christy, wasn't subject to Tom's sexual abuse, he did physically abuse her, beating her at the drop of a hat. After Christy complained to her mother, Deborah agreed to let Christy come live with her, knowingly leaving Stacy alone with a violent man. By 1986, Stacy had stopped trying to avoid her father. There was no use. Everyone from her babysitter to her psychologist to her own mother had failed to protect her. She felt completely hopeless. With nobody else in the house, Tom raped 14-year-old Stacy nearly every day. It was an unbearable existence. That year, Stacy attempted suicide by taking a handful of allergy pills she found in her grandmother's cabinet. In response, Tom, possibly afraid his secret would come out if Stacy continued to hurt herself, sent her to live with Deborah. Unfortunately, Stacy's relief was short-lived. Deborah was always either working or out on dates, so she became a de facto parent to 12-year-old Christy. Eventually, Deborah settled on a man named John, who consumed all of her time and attention. Stacy and Christy felt unwanted at their mother's house. Meanwhile, their father seemed to miss them and swore he had changed. Deborah and John got married in 1987. The next year, they moved from Missouri to Arkansas. According to Stacy, Deborah made it clear, not through her words, but through her actions, that she was better off without her daughters around. She and John spent all their time working or locked in their bedroom. Her mother couldn't be bothered to spend any time with them, and Stacy and Christy were uncomfortable around John anyway. The marriage happened so fast that the two girls felt like they hardly knew their new stepfather at all. Stacy and Christy had a choice to make. They could move to Arkansas with their mother, who made them feel like burdens, or they could move back in with Tom, who had, it seemed, undergone a change of heart. He was living with his mother again, and he begged his daughters for a fresh start. He claimed he wanted them to be a family. 16-year-old Stacy and 14-year-old Christy ultimately decided to move back in with their father and grandmother. Although Stacy's choice to go back to Tom seems difficult to understand, 
Work by psychiatrist Dr. Susan V. McClear had found that children sexually abused by their fathers experience a peculiar bonding with their father. This is referred to as traumatic bonding, and according to psychologists M. DeYoung and J.A. Lowry, may explain strong emotional ties to the incest perpetrator and a history of behavior that may increase the risk of further victimization. Stacy's relationship with Tom was confusing, especially for her. She hated him and loved him at the same time. He disgusted her when he was Tom, yet there were still times, albeit infrequently, that he was the dad she desperately wanted. Their traumatic bond may have created in Stacy cognitive distortions, especially surrounding the issue of blame. Although she was clearly the victim, prolonged abuse and psychological manipulation led her to feel extreme guilt and shame. Stacy may have accepted her father's promise of a fresh start because he had successfully convinced her that the abuse was her fault. She also may have believed him because at her core, she wanted their relationship to be better. But no matter how badly she wanted things to change, they didn't. According to her, the abuse picked up again almost immediately. Even with Grandma Lannert around, Tom was drunk and violent day in and day out. As much as Stacy wanted to protect her sister, it was impossible to keep Christy shielded from Tom's physical abuse. Tom was clearly incapable of taking care of himself or his daughters, and Grandma Lannert was too old and sick to keep him in line. Christy, barely 15 years old, even developed a secret drinking problem of her own. It was left up to Stacy to care for her traumatized sister and her ailing grandmother, all the while enduring her father's abuse. It was already unbearable, but things only got worse. In 1989, Denver and John relocated to an Air Force base in Guam, and Grandma Lannert passed away. With their mother out of the country and their grandmother gone, 17-year-old Stacy and 15-year-old Christy were entirely at Tom's mercy. To make matters worse, Stacy was still suffering with the abdominal pain that a doctor diagnosed as lactose intolerance so many years before. In 1990, Stacy finally received her real diagnosis. Her reproductive organs were racked with infection. She had pelvic inflammatory disease, or PID, almost certainly caused by nearly a decade of sexual abuse. But the pain wasn't the worst of it. Stacy learned she would never be able to have children of her own. In that moment, she decided that the father she had once loved was dead to her. She knew she had to figure out how to get away from him. But moving out wasn't easy. She wanted to go to college, but her father had convinced her she wasn't smart enough to get in. She needed to find somewhere else to live, but didn't have enough money to support herself and her sister. She thought about joining the military, but Tom told her that if she left, he would kill Christy. Knowing that his daughters were getting old enough to escape his abuse, Tom became increasingly unhinged. He started sleeping on the living room couch near the front door so he could monitor when his daughters went in and out. He bought a 22 rifle, which he carried around the house to intimidate them. In an offhand manner, he frequently threatened to kill 18-year-old Stacy 
and 16-year-old Christy. By July of 1990, the Lannards' house was a minefield. One wrong step could make the whole thing explode. On July 4, 1990, a fight broke out between Tom and Christy. Christy needed money for a haircut, but Tom refused to give it to her. Christy, years of abuse bubbling to the surface in a single moment, screamed in her father's face. He was supposed to take care of her, yet he couldn't bother to give her $20. In the middle of their fight, Caitlin, a puppy Stacy bought on her 18th birthday, peed on the carpet. Tom fumed, kicking and threatening to kill the animal. Stacy grabbed her pet and told Tom that if the puppy went, she went too. A sinister smile spread across Tom's face. He told Stacy it didn't matter if she left. Pointing at Christy, he said, I have your replacement. Stacy's throat tightened. She would have given anything to keep her sister from experiencing the abuse Tom subjected her to. But Tom simply laughed at Stacy's protest. He grabbed Christy, pulled her into his bedroom, and slammed the door. Stacy banged on the door, begging her father to leave Christy alone, but it was too late. Tom raped Christy. Stacy hated herself for not being able to do more. She hated herself for ever leaving Christy alone with Tom to begin with. When the bedroom door unlocked, both girls knew they had to escape. They ran outside and jumped in the car together. But before they drove away, Stacy stepped back out. She didn't know where exactly it came from, but suddenly she felt more powerful than she had in years. She felt determined, full of newfound conviction. She gave Christy her keys and told her to come back in an hour. In the meantime, she was going to make Tom understand exactly what he'd done. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. We'll discuss Stacy's rising conflict with her father and see how the night of July 4th changed the Lannard family forever. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. And Parcasters, be sure to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. It's a fun twist on a classic setup where hopeful singles choose their match based on personality, not looks. That is until the very end. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.